and welcome to another Bible study. Today we are going to be going through Romans chapter 6. I'd hoped to be back in the studio, but it looks like we're going to be one more week uh, here in my home office. So welcome yet again. Um, but this week we are going through Romans chapter 6, which I am um, very excited about. I stayed up uh, quite late yesterday uh, prepping for this just out of just sheer excitement of the message. So today we are going to be talking about um, sin uh, is a big element of that. But this, this question of are we going to be, as Christ followers, are we going to be instruments of wickedness or instruments of righteousness? Are we going to be slaves to sin or are we going to embrace uh, the death that Jesus died and be born again, being transformed um, through baptism with Christ from death to life? And this overall big picture, this is what Paul's talking about. Now, he's speaking, uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking to uh, a group of believers in Rome uh, thousands of years ago, and, and I always try when we're going through these to look at the context, but th this passage, Romans 6, uh, transcends time. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you are talking to someone 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, uh, or two days ago. Uh, this information rings true, and you're going to see that today. Uh, so why don't you bow your heads as we get into this. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me, soften the hearts and the ears and the minds of those that are listening and me, and just help us deal with this battle that we face on a day-to-day -day basis of sin and what that is and, and how we so easily become slaves to it. Give us the strength, the energy, and the wisdom and how to overcome that. Um, we love you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Again, speak through me. Praise you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so uh, Romans chapter 6 is all one big idea. Uh, Paul, he hits on it from a few different angles, but it all comes back to one idea. So what I'm going to do um, is I'm going to do, I'm going to read through the entire thing. It's, it's 23 verses, but before I do that, I want to define what is sin? Because, I mean, to the non-Christian out there that might be watching this, it's like, oh, great, this Jesus freak's going to talk about sin again and Satan, uh, as the church lady would say. Uh, so, you know, what is sin? Why are Christians so, uh, oh, you can't sin, etc. So the definition of sin, simply put, is missing the mark. It, it, it's, it's falling short of, uh, of the mark. Simply put, so last week we looked at uh, uh, the fall, the origination of sin in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to go into that. You can look back on it. Um, I'm going to read a few verses now, just citing a few verses. I'm not actually going to read all of them. Deuteronomy 9.7, as well as Joshua 1.18. So these are some of the first books in the Old Testament. They define sin as rebellion from God. Okay, uh, 1 John 3, 4 defines it as transgression of the law of God. So it's going against the law of God. That's what 1 John says. Sin is not 
sin because it's bad. It's sin because it's bad for you. Does that make sense? Um, it, it, it'll mess you up. And that's the important thing. I mean, there's such this negative connotation to the word sin, uh, especially in modern culture. But the reality is, is that God, who designed me and you, knows what's good for us and what's not good for us. And sin, uh, well, this is an interesting element, is, is that, well, where'd sin come from, right? Because if God created everything, did he create sin? Sin is a perversion, a tweaking of what was designed as something good being tweaked or perverted for selfish uh, reasons, for selfish benefit, for benefiting only yourself and not others and not God and not the kingdom. But at its core, God created everything, right? So at its core, before it's perverted, before it's tweaked, whatever the motivation is there is good. Uh, let me give you a few numbers, uh, a few numbers, a few more quotes. Numbers 32:23. be sure of this, your sin will find you out. That's kind of a looming one, uh, but it is true. One way or another, if you start out small, just dabbling in a sin, then you'll start to practice that sin, and then you'll become a slave to that sin and addicted to that sin, and eventually, at some point in that spectrum, your sin's going to find you out. Others are going to discover it. It's not just this quiet little thing that nobody else notices. It will be found out. Hebrews 11.25, there is pleasure in sin for a season. And that's where you get this, this dangerous little place right at the beginning where uh, the selfish person or the selfish nature uh, says, well, this isn't that bad. I mean... Just flubbing the numbers a little bit isn't that bad. Everybody does it. Taking this payment from my client as cash and not putting it on the books doesn't hurt anybody. Everybody, I mean, the government has plenty of money. They don't need any more of mine. I already pay too many taxes. It's small. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Going out and having coffee with this guy from work doesn't matter. My husband's not going to know. It doesn't matter. We're just friends. In this modern era that we live in, I can have as many friends as I want. And who is my husband to get jealous? It's his issue, not mine. Lying, cheating, gossiping, and there's worse. Hatred. I mean, there's so many. That, that And it starts as something small but it leads to something worse and worse and worse. And there is pleasure in sin for a season, especially right at the very beginning. There's a little bit of adrenaline. There's a little bit of excitement. Uh, and it's you, you can easily go, well, you know what? We know so much more than they knew back in the Bible days. That's so out of date. We can do what we want. We're empowered. Um, it's my destiny. I can do what I want. And so you justify that sin and you go from this little tiny thing and it, and it goes down that progression of this small little thing to then you start to get good at it and you start to justify, oh, this isn't that bad. This is fine. It's just two, three drinks. It's fine. Nobody notices. But then it 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 starts to take hold of you. And alcohol, I, I love the saying, a man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. 
man or woman, whatever. But I, I like that saying. And that leads you down that progression of sin, of small little thing, unchecked, grows into habit, grows into being practiced, grows into bondage, slavery, and addiction. Uh, a few more verses, and then we'll actually get into the Bible. First um, John 1, 8 we are called to admit and confess our sin. I'll talk about that more in a minute. First uh, John 3, uh, 5 through 6, and 1 John 5, 18, a believer will have a decreasing pattern of sin in their life. Talk about that in a, in a bit. And then 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we get into this, I just wanted to take that, that quick little moment and, and just go through that and define that real quick for you. Okay, so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through all of Romans chapter 6. It's only 23 verses. You can follow along if you like, but I recommend that you just sit back and enjoy it. Just sit back and listen to it and um, let it soak in. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united, uh, United, excuse me, for if we have been united with him in a, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done and away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves the one to the one you obey, whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But, thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. 
Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew! Oh, man! I love Romans 6. I mean, uh, when I read through that last night, not last night, um, last week, when I read through it last week, I got so excited, a little overwhelmed because there's a lot of things that that Paul talks about. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this and break this down. And at the end, I'm going to come back to the overall main point. Okay, so let me go through my notes. Okay, so this opening line that Paul references this idea, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So you have to go back to verse 20 of uh, chapter 5 to understand what he's talking about, because what shall we say then is clearly leading from the previous sentence. So the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign in through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the idea is, is that the more sinful the sinner, the more powerful Christ's sacrifice and the grace is. Does that make sense? This idea that if a serial killer can be forgiven find repentance in the Lord, how massive is that grace? It's so much because uh, that person went so far uh, in their transition. So this then, the question is, what should we say? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is what is called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Strange big word, but the idea simply is, this is the definition, the casting off of moral restraint in order to experience more of God's grace and forgiveness. This is a perverted way to see grace. The idea is, I'm going to sit it up. I'm going to go have sex with as many people as I can. I'm going to go and just be uh, as free as I want to be, because then I am going to receive more grace, and I'm going to know what his righteousness is. The Bible talks about the fact that that's not belief in God. That would The argument there is if a person who believes that and follows that, they haven't actually received repentance at all because they clearly don't believe it in their heart. So that is this first argument that Paul kind of laughs off. That's just like, no, of course not. And he mentions it twice um, where he says his result is by no means. So continuing on. Let's talk about baptism. So that's Romans 6.1. Now Romans 6, 3 through 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There's a lot of Christianese talk that's in there. So uh, let me break that down. Simplify it just a little bit. Baptism. 
Okay, so the physical act of baptism is when you, as the person being baptized, are uh, taken, submerged underwater, and then brought back out. Okay, you see this throughout the Bible. Uh, they had it in the Old Testament as a, a, a perspective on cleanliness. When a person who wasn't a Jew became a Jew, they got baptized to uh, for cleanliness, to cleanse their unholiness, so to speak. Then you have John the Baptist, which his baptism was one of repentance. That also was symbolic of going into the water, being washed clean, and coming out clean, born again, anew, not born again, excuse me, I don't want to use that term just yet, but being refreshed, being cleansed anew. Then you have the baptism of Jesus Christ. And the idea there is that it is a symbolic representation of what Jesus went through. On the cross is the idea of the falling down and going into the water is his death. Being fully submerged represents the three days that he was buried in the tomb. He actually wasn't there. He went down into hell, into Hades. And there's a whole other discussion we can have on that. And then when you're, pulled, when, when you're brought back out, it's representative of the resurrection, of the rebirth that Christ had and the defeating of death in his um, being resurrected back to life. So that's the idea. Baptism is a symbolic gesture. Do I personally believe that you have to be baptism, baptized in order to be saved? No. And the Bible, every time you see a baptism in the New Testament, you see a confession of faith that precedes it. Baptism is a physical representation to the rest of the world and to yourself that you are taking on uh, Christ, that you are now a Christ believer, and that you are being born again. Infant baptism, uh, I prefer the idea of infant dedication because at six weeks old, what kind of choice do you have? You, the, the key thing with the baptism is, is that it's free will and choice first, and then representation, uh, symbolic representation of being baptized. Do I like the idea of infant dedication? Yes, I think it's all about the parents and the community coming around saying that we are going to do our part to raise this child. Um, so that's baptism. But one of the key things that it leads to is this idea of being born again. That's another very Christianese term. If you want to look into that more and this idea of... Um, being born again. There's two ones that I wanted, two, two Bible verses. One, Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him, that's Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful work of God, who raised him from the dead. That's what we were just talking about, is, is that we are buried with him through baptism. And that's the, the argument, the thing that Paul's talking about is, is that you've gone through that process too, symbolically, but you need to keep that in mind as a new believer, you went through that process and you have now been saved and you've been born again. So I want to actually flip over to um, John 3. John chapter 3. So leave your finger here and flip over to John chapter 3. And we are going to see um, Jesus talk to Nicodemus. 
Love that name. Uh, Nicodemus uh, was a Pharisee, but he was also a believer in Christ. And you see this. He, he, he meets with Jesus at night because he's really curious. If you've ever watched uh, The Chosen, um, I love the way that they portray Nicodemus. Uh, a great, uh, just, just do a Google search for The Chosen. It's a TV series that's based online that's crowdsourced, crowdfunded. Phenomenal. I love the way they take some liberties, but they do a great job of, of showing the humanity of the different characters of the New Testament. So join with me, uh, John 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. It's the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you now of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe when I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses was lifted up lifted up the snake in the wilderness, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the idea of being born again. You are born anew. You are a new creation. And baptism is a representation of that. So next, uh, there is this, uh, on verse 13, I really love in 613, uh, and, and stay with me through all of this. What I'm doing now is just going through and hitting on these different points that Paul makes, and then I'm going to bring it all back around at the end and, and, and summarize what he's getting at here. But I love this. Verse 13, do not you, excuse me, do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You are either growing closer to Christ or further from him. There's really no middle ground. You're going one way or the other. In that same line, you are either being an instrument of wickedness or an instrument of righteousness. And I love that idea. Now, I do think that those are on the extremes, that, that on the one hand, our goal as a Christ follower is to be used by Christ as an instrument of righteousness. That's one of the things that I pray nearly every day, is, is that Christ would use me for the benefit of the kingdom, for the benefit of others. 
the greatest you will ever, ever feel as an individual and the best way to overcome sorrow or depression is to do things for other people. It's amazing how when you do that, when you do things, acts for other people, you immediately realize how insignificant your own situations are and how much value there is in helping other people. But on the same token, on the opposite side of this, people don't realize those who are living in sin, practicing sin, and by that I mean practicing a very, very prideful life lifestyle. I can do what I want, when I want, where I want. My life is my choice. And, and who are you to judge me? I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, that selfishness that you have, you are being used by Satan as an instrument of wickedness. And you are, are continuing uh, to bring other people down with you, even though you don't even realize it, don't even know it. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 13 here. I love that, that the, the, this comparison. So now we get into slavery. He mentions the word slaves so, so much throughout this. Uh, just looking from 15 on, I, I outline in my Bible and read uh, all the parts where it says slaves. Obedient slaves, slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to sin, slaves to righteousness, slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, slaves to righteousness, slaves to sin, slaves to God, slaves of God. So what I want to talk about here is this idea that doesn't exist today, but it's what's called uh, doulos is the Greek term for it, and that is a bond slave. But in the Old Testament, there's a great picture of this, and this is found in Exodus 21, 5 through 6. For you note takers, you can write that down. Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. And what this talks about is this idea of a slave by choice. So a little historical cultural context to understand what we're talking about here. Back in the day, in the Old Testament times, Jews, uh, well, not just Jews, but anybody, you would get slaves for all sorts of different reasons. It wasn't a racial thing at all. If you owed a debt you couldn't pay, you would actually go into servitude as a slave to whoever you were in debt to until that debt was paid. Once the debt was paid, you were freed. The Jews in particular had a couple of rules that they followed as it relates to having slaves. First of all, one rule, the year of Jubilee. So every seven years, you, by law, were required to free your slaves. Right? So they, if their debt was massive, you would only be able to have them for seven years. Then you gave them the option. And this is what is discussed here in uh, Exodus 21. You give them the option. And if they choose, they can choose to stay. And they stay in your household doing the same tasks, but now they are paid a wage. What this led to was the slave owners wanting to have such a great relationship with the slaves that they had that they wanted to stay. It was like they were forced to be a member of your family, but then you treated them so well that they chose to stay at the end. Now, there are other ways that people could become slaves. For example, uh, if one village attacked another village, one city, one country, whatever, one people group attacked another, if you chose not to fight or if you surrendered, you could either be killed or could be taken as slaves by the victor. So what this resulted in was this idea of a slave by choice, if you chose to stay on. And that is what uh, 
an idea that you need to keep in the back of your mind is that uh, when he talks about being a slave by choice, that's the idea here. So when you are a slave to sin, it, it's what I talked about before is, is that that sin starts out as something small that you, you, you first, you do it and you justify it. Uh, you ignore your conscience telling you, maybe you shouldn't have done that. And then you start to practice that sin and then you become a slave to it. You become in bondage to it. But the argument here is that you did that by choice because you went through this process the process of becoming an alcoholic is one that is paved over many, many drinks over a period of time. You don't just have your first drink and boom, you're an alcoholic. In the same way, um, with addictions to pornography or addictions to anything, it starts small and it builds. So this statement that he says, like in verse 18, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Well, actually, one of the things that I love is, is that the very next line, Paul even says, verse 19, I love this. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Like, he says this statement of that you become slaves to righteousness and immediately is like, eh, okay, I'm just saying this because I'm giving you an example because of your limited uh, ability to be able to understand this is the idea there, um, which I think is funny that Paul puts that in there. The idea here is, is that the fervor with which you practice your addiction to sin, whatever it is, Paul's saying, take that same intensity and now put it towards pursuing Christ, pursuing God, pursuing righteousness, pursuing doing good. There is that period before you become uh, a complete uh, addicted to and out of control and unable to stop in your sinful nature where you practice that sin. The idea that he's getting at here is, is that trying to get better and better at it should be put towards good things as opposed to towards bad things. That's the idea there. So now um, the last thing that I want to talk about here before I give the overall message is this analogy of the courtroom. And I'm sure uh, the majority of the people that are listening to this have heard this Christian analogy of the courtroom where you have God as the judge sitting on his throne. And then you have Satan as the uh, prosecution that is uh, accusing uh, day and night. Uh, the defendant, the person on trial, is us, is mankind, is every single individual. It's you, it's me. We're being accused constantly by Satan. And that image is one that a lot of people see. And they look up as God as this, this big judge that is, uh, Christians see God as just this uh, good deeds versus bad deeds sort of thing. And that God is constantly weighing my good deeds versus my bad deeds. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'll get into heaven and it'll be fine. So I'm a generally good person. I'll be fine. Where is that based? That is scriptural. And that is actually uh, 100% true as well. Revelation 20. So flip over to Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 11 for me. Revelation 20, 11. And this is what is referred to as the great white throne judgment. Let me go through and, and read this. <clears throat> Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne 
and in, and him who seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this idea of having all of your deeds, good and bad, weighed is accurate. That is biblical. But the Christian we are in the book of life. What is the book of life? The book of life are those individuals who have accepted Jesus Christ as your defense attorney. Using this analogy, this example of a courtroom, when you are presented in the courtroom, you have two choices. The trick is you have to make this decision before you get to the courtroom. And the decisions is this, who is going to defend you in this courtroom? Are you going to defend yourself or are you going to choose to accept the court appointed attorney? Who is the court appointed attorney? It's Jesus. Just so it happens as the judge's son, but he is the free court appointed attorney that you can choose to have defend you or you can choose to defend yourself. I led a good life. My good deeds outweighed my bad. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't have an affair. Uh, I'm a good person. So you know what? I don't need Christ. I don't need Jesus. I don't need the court appointed attorney. I'm good to go. Versus if you choose to have Jesus be your attorney, the one thing that you must do the one requirement in this courtroom scenario in order to have the court-appointed attorney, you must submit a plea of guilt in your case. The case is presented before you, and the one thing you must do is say, guilty. Everything he said, I did. And I deserve every punishment that I, that, that, that I should receive. I trust and I hope in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he did for me to forgive my sins. And right then, right there, what happens in that courtroom scenario, Jesus is your defense attorney. God plays it all out. You submit your plea of guilt. And Jesus says, as you heard, my defendant admits his guilt. I'm going to take his punishment. And then Jesus puts on the handcuffs that are meant for you and the soldiers come and take him away. And this is the crucifixion. He is now tortured. He is now uh, spat on. He's whipped. He's, he's beaten. He's humiliated. He's insulted. And he's ultimate, ultimately crucified specifically for you and for me. That is the punishment 
the last line that we have here in Romans uh, chapter 6, what's the very last line? For the wages of sin is death. God is 100% just. He is 100% just. Thus, everybody who does A will receive the punishment that is due for doing A. Jesus in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the fact that sin is, is, is all equal. If you have hate in your heart, you are equal to doing murder. If you have lust in your heart, you are, it's equivalent to having an affair, to committing adultery. So in this idea of being able to defend yourself, no one can do it. No one is good enough. No one's good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. That's where this whole idea of uh, the courtroom comes into play. And this idea of being written into the book of life. Now, let me come back around to Paul's overarching point. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, as someone who acknowledges the work that Jesus did on the cross for you and all that he did to defeat death and to defeat sin and to forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future, how can you still practice sin? How can you still live in that sin? You have been set free. You have had the ultimate price paid. The value of anything is based on what someone is willing to pay for it. That shows how important that you are. And we just read this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. So how then? How? How can you still live in sin? How can you still practice sin? How can you be a slave to sin when you see the price that was paid? How can you not live a different life? That is the point that Paul is making here in Romans 6. I am not trying to say that Christians shouldn't sin. Thankfully, we as Christians have it all figured out. So once you accept Christ, you never sin again. Life is rosy. You get into heaven. Everything's done. Everything's roses. You can close the book. We're done. No, the difference between a sinner uh, and a prideful person is acknowledgement of sin. We talked about that before. The key thing about a Christian is, is that you admit, I can't do it on my own. So when we looked at that same uh, spectrum of the continuation of sin, starting on the one side with the small little sin, as a Christian, actually anybody, anybody, you have written on your heart, your conscience, right and wrong. In fact, C.S. Lewis uses this as his ultimate argument, his foundational argument for the existence of God. The fact that across all people groups, all cultures, there is this unspoken and spoken rule of life that is set in place of morality. And based on that, C.S. Lewis uses the argument that is proof that morality was set and put in our hearts, in our DNA, by somebody, something else. Thus, God exists. So the argument is, on the spectrum, when you first sin, 
the Christian listens to that still small voice and repents and admits their sin to, to everyone around them. Now, you, you don't get up and say, I have sinned. But you acknowledge it. You realize what it was. For example, if uh, that same analogy of from a business standpoint, uh, you take cash from the client, admit it. If an employee saw it, admit it. Say, you know what? Uh, I've made it a practice of accepting cash payments and not putting things in the books. And uh, you know what? Uh, I just don't feel right about it. And uh I'm going to put everything in the books from now on. In fact, I'm going to go back into my books as far as I can, and I'm going to adjust those and put them into the books so that I, I pay my fair share of tax. Your employees will be blown away by that. And that is an example of acknowledging the mistake you made and choosing to live as an instrument of righteousness. You are a tool that is now being used as an example. Same thing with that analogy that I gave um, of the woman who goes and has coffee with her coworker. It's just a harmless cup of coffee. But the issue there is, is that adultery doesn't just randomly happen. You go have a cup of coffee and then you go have sex. No, it starts as very, very small. And all it is, is starting a relationship with a friend at work that, that just becomes a little too emotional. And all of a sudden, you're sharing more information with this friend from work than you are with your husband. And then you start complaining about your husband to this friend from work. And then you start having a stronger bond with this friend from work. And all of a sudden, you realize, wow, I didn't really know what love was when I first got married. This is what love truly is. So I need to be faithful to this love. Now you're practicing. Now you're practicing the sin, and this is where you now lead into adultery. The righteous person says when that still small voice, they, they, they do that painful thing of admitting and saying to that guy, you know what, I'm married and you're a great guy, but I just don't feel right about us going on our own to have coffee, you know, whatever it might be. You can even be more subtle than that and always make sure that somebody else goes with you or just don't be available and ghost the guy. It's up to you what you do or how you do it. But when you have that still small voice that speaks to you, that's God. That is God telling you, hey, this is going to mess you up. This is going to lead to bad things. Sin is not sin because it's bad. Sin is called sin because it messes you up. God is the designer. So in the Bible, he gives us the manufacturer's recommended specifications for how to find peace, how to find purpose, there you go. That's our whole point that he makes. And the final line that we have is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you haven't made that decision on whether or not Jesus is your attorney, it's very easy to do. The Bible makes it so clear the only thing that God cares about is your heart. In the Old Testament, we talked about this before with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him to, as righteousness. All God wants is your heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, and we're going to get there in a few weeks. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ, as your Savior, you will be saved. 
So I'm going to pray that prayer right now. If you've already prayed the prayer, pray it again. Renew that covenant. Renew that commitment. But if you haven't, join me. It's very simple. So why don't you bow your heads. Lord, thank you. Thank you for doing all the work necessary to save me. Lord, I need you. I need you to do a work in me and change me from the inside out. Lord, I acknowledge the work that you did on the cross. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. Please come into my life and change me from the inside out. I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I have a homework assignment for you, for everybody, whether you just prayed that for the first time or not. One of my favorite songs that tells this whole story that we've been talking about today is from North Point Worship, and it's called Death Was Arrested. In the notes below this video or below this podcast is a link to the music video as well as to the link to the lyrics. Read the lyrics. This is so well written. The song culminates. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Every time I hear it, especially this version that I put the link to, the live version, uh, everything goes silent. Uh, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And then they, they, they build the base. They, they, it, it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And then they sing just triumphantly. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. I always, in the car, when I'm driving, I sing that so loud with so much joy. It almost always leads me to cry. Just tears of joy. Because that is the entire point. We were dead to sin, stuck in this sinful lifestyle, practicing sin, being slaves to sin. And then Jesus Christ did all the work necessary on the cross so that we no longer have to be bound by those chains of slavery to sin, but we are set free. So how now shall we live? That's the question that Paul asks. I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.